Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, what's being done to stop the spread of monkeypox? Since the beginning of the outbreak in May this year, there have been almost 30,000 cases of monkeypox in countries that historically had not reported the disease. Here in Ireland, there have been over 100 reported cases, and while there are plans to roll out a vaccine to help stop the spread, it's not clear when that will start. Just last month, the World Health Organization declared its highest alert over the monkeypox outbreak. The hope is that its recommendations will encourage countries to take action to stop transmission and to protect those who are most at risk. But as the world continues to grapple with the cost of living crisis, global political tensions and a new strategy of living with COVID, there are concerns that action has not been swift or strong enough. So what do we know about this latest global health emergency? And what is being done to protect people? Here to get us up to speed is Dr. Killian de Gascon, Director of the National Virus Reference Laboratory. Killian, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Now, can you start by first explaining what is monkeypox? Okay, so monkeypox is a, it's a DNA virus in contrast to SARS-CoV-2, which obviously people are more than familiar with at this stage, and the likes of influenza. So their, their genetic material is made up of RNA, whereas monkeypox's genetic material is made up of DNA. The implication of that for us is that it tends to mutate at a slightly slower rate. So it doesn't mutate as rapidly and therefore doesn't necessarily evolve as quickly. In the context of where it comes from, the name itself is probably a little bit of a misnomer in that the natural reservoir for monkeypox is probably small rodents or mammals in Western and Central Africa. So the virus itself was initially discovered in monkeys in 1958, which is where the name comes from. And we first realized that it could cause infection in humans in 1970. So over the last four to five decades, it it has caused a small number of cases in West Africa and Central Africa. There are two different types. One is called Congo Basin and the other is called the West African strain. And the number of cases that have been caused in those endemic regions or so-called endemic regions in recent decades has been increasing quite significantly. Traditionally, in the rest of the world, it's, it's not an endemic virus, which means that the virus isn't usually found there at the best of times. What, what can happen and has happened over recent years is that individual cases can be imported into those countries that are non-endemic, so whether that's the likes of the United States or countries in Europe. And sometimes those imported cases can lead to chains of transmission uh, in those countries that are, that are non-endemic. But the outbreak that we're seeing now really is unprecedented in in the context of monkeypox. We've never really seen anything like this before. And how does it present in terms of symptoms if somebody has it? So uh, monkeypox is related to to smallpox with which people may be familiar. It's it's obviously been eradicated now through an extensive immunisation programme. But I suppose the classic presentation for monkeypox would be the rash. And that rash typically starts as, as a flat red rash that then progresses through a number of stages so it progresses to sort of vesicles blisters pustules so those lesions are are virus filled and then those lesions then rupture and and crust over and scab and then the scabs fall over and they leave intact skin beneath now the, the skin may be scarred at that stage so the rash is the classic presentation and then in addition to that typically people before the rash comes they'll get a fever chills headache swollen glands um, and significant fatigue or or exhaustion. And I think one of the things that has made the current um, outbreak quite challenging in many respects 
is that the, the rash hasn't been as typical as we would have seen in, in the textbook. So when people think of a monkeypox rash, as I said, they think often of a, the likes of smallpox, which is where the whole body essentially is, is covered in these blisters or, or pustules. What we've seen in the current outbreak is that the rash is often atypical and quite mild and maybe quite confined to a particular region of the body. So people aren't getting the disseminated lesions that I suppose we always expected we might see. And if somebody does have it, how long do they need to isolate? And are there other measures that people are being asked to take? Funnily enough, traditionally, monkeypox wouldn't be considered a, a terribly infectious or, or transmissible virus. So in contrast to the likes of SARS-CoV-2 that we've been dealing with for the last couple of years. So people are typically infectious with monkeypox from either the onset of fever. For those who don't get a fever, they're infectious from just before the onset of the rash. And generally speaking, then they would be considered infectious until the lesions on their skin have have crusted over and their skin is intact again. So typically that takes anywhere between two to four weeks. And what we're asking people to do in, in that setting is that if they have the infection, they should really avoid contact with others until all of their lesions have healed um, and the scabs have have crusted and fallen off and and they have um, intact skin again. For those people who have been in contact with somebody who's infected, so those close contacts of infected individuals will be contacted by public health and typically they'll only be asked to monitor themselves for symptoms for 21 days, which is the, the upper limit of the incubation period. Now, depending on the nature of the contact, those individuals may be asked to avoid contact with vulnerable individuals just as a precautionary basis. But typically, um, close contacts don't necessarily need to isolate themselves. They just need to monitor themselves for symptoms. And do we know the origin of this current outbreak? That's a really good question, Michelle. And to the best of my knowledge, we haven't been able to ascertain exactly where it has come from. Based on, on the data that we currently have, we know that the virus would originally have have left Africa at some point. It's obviously been imported into a number of different countries. And from there, the virus has managed to get into super spreader events and has kicked off the current outbreak. I think there is some speculation that given the the scale of the current outbreak and given the fact that the global extent of it, that the cases may have been, I suppose, seeding in those countries over a longer period of time than we might originally have thought. But at this stage, to my knowledge, at least we haven't been able to, I suppose, go back to an index case, if you like, that, that first left so Western Africa. Now, we do know that certain countries are, are looking at this through, through sequencing a lot of their cases, um, and hopefully we'll get a better picture as to where, where the origin was in, in, in the coming months. We obviously, given the, the community or given the, the patient cohort that is involved, I suppose we believe that some of those super spreader events may have been associated with festivals over um, the European continent through the course of the summer. But again, we haven't uh, definitively got virological evidence uh, um, of that at this point. And you mentioned earlier that with this virus, we're not seeing the kind of rapid mutation that we would have seen with the coronavirus, but the rash is presenting differently. So why is that? Again, I'm not sure that we're entirely certain. A lot of the information we have about about monkeypox, I guess, is from its circulation in, in endemic populations where people are acquiring it perhaps from the, the natural reservoir itself. So whether that's uh, small rodents or mammals or, or perhaps even non-human primates. And I guess what we're seeing in 
the outbreak more globally now is obviously it's it's person to person transmission, and I think we're just getting perhaps a more comprehensive picture about how the virus can present purely because there is increased awareness. So if you think about it uh, in the context of say a health service that perhaps isn't in a position to to case find or to perform diagnostics on on everybody, that perhaps the only cases that come to the attention of uh, doctors or hospitals in Africa, maybe those cases that are, are very severe that do have the, the classic disseminated rash or maybe experience complications of the disease. Whereas obviously what we're seeing over here is that there are so many cases and we're seeing a very wide spectrum of infection. Obviously we're, we're testing quite widely and, and there are cases that perhaps might have been missed um, in endemic regions over the years. But to I suppose to give you a shorter answer, uh, I don't think we know why it's behaving differently uh, in this population. Can you talk us through exactly how it spreads from person to person? Yeah, of course. So as I said, traditionally it wouldn't be considered a a very infectious virus and it would believe to, or as I said, would always have been felt to require prolonged close contact. So typically we would have seen transmission of infection to household contacts, uh, to sexual contacts, and also then to healthcare workers who weren't, um, who hadn't been provided necessarily with the appropriate personal protective equipment. We also know that the virus can be transmitted through contaminated fomites, so things like contaminated bedding or towels or, or clothing. But the the main routes of transmission would be direct contact with with lesions, which, as I said earlier, are are chock full of, of virus particles. Also, it can be transmitted by respiratory droplets. So oftentimes in the early stage of the rash, uh, people will have uh, oral lesions in the mouth and they may also get lesions in the respiratory tract. So uh, respiratory droplets can also transmit the infection. And then the third route would be in the Western world, at least would be through contaminated bedding and fomites. Now, obviously, if you're in the endemic regions of Central Africa or West Africa, you may also acquire it directly from an animal reservoir, whether that's through, I suppose, through just through exposure or through injury, like something like a bite or, or through ingestion of, of contaminated food or infected food. But um, I think the key thing that we're, we're learning here is that maybe in the right setting, the virus might be slightly more transmissible than we, than we would have thought um, traditionally. But really, I suppose, direct contact is probably the, the main route that, that we're seeing at the moment. It looks as if, based on, again, sort of early data, based on what we're seeing, it looks like the amount of virus in the vesicles on the skin is significantly greater than the amount of virus in, in the respiratory tract. Now, we will need to see that confirmed in other studies, but that's what we're seeing at the moment. People will have seen it described by some as an STI. Is that correct? And what problems lie in that type of messaging when it comes to monkeypox? Yeah, so it is very challenging. I guess traditionally we wouldn't have considered it an STI because when we think about sexually transmitted infections, we often think about pathogens like, say, chlamydia or gonorrhea that require direct sexual contact, be that penetrative or otherwise, um, for transmission. Now, when we look at monkeypox, we know that that's not the case. It's typically skin-to-skin direct contact, but as I said, it can also be respiratory droplets or it can also be through contaminated uh, fomites or objects in, in an infected person's household. So the challenge, I guess, of thinking about it as an STI is that it automatically, I suppose, it causes some people to think that they're not at risk because perhaps they're not sexually active or because they haven't been in contact with somebody sexually in, in 
a period of time or they haven't seen somebody with lesions. So while it certainly can be transmitted in the setting of sexual activity, realistically, that's probably more related to this direct contact of of lesions to non-intact skin. And I think what we want to try and do in much the same way as we would have done with them, with the likes of COVID, is that we want to make people aware of the activities that, that, that are risky in and of themselves, but not necessarily just confine things to a, a particular setting, purely because that can cause people to have a, a lesser appreciation of what their own individual level of risk might be. Because as I said, if we look at the traditional transmission routes for monkeypox, it's often household contacts, it's often healthcare workers, and as I said, certainly sexual contacts would be a part of that. But it, it is important that we don't forget about the other groups um, when we just when we think about this current outbreak. Yeah, and just so we're clear on this with this current outbreak, there are lots of cases among gay and bisexual men and other men who have sex with men, but it's not limited to that sexual orientation, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and again, and I, I'm sorry to come, keep coming back to COVID, but, but hopefully it's just because people are, are so familiar with it that it might resonate. It, what we learned over the last couple of years, like viruses just follow human behaviour. They don't pick and choose different groups within society. So they don't, like, you know, it was, when we talked about COVID, COVID didn't pick on people that were going to pubs. COVID didn't pick on people that were, you know, going to weddings. It's just the virus will follow human behavior. So in that context, we need to look at the activities that present a higher risk than, than stigmatizing certain groups. And I think just, I suppose, to, to look at that more closely, we do also have to respond to the data that we have. Uh, and we know that groups like Man to Man and Empower in collaboration with the HSE have, have already done great work in engaging with uh, the GBMSM community to create awareness and to ensure that they have access to the information that they need. But the key message is, as you said, that the virus doesn't really care about your sexuality. It's really going to just follow the behavior. And as I said, it's household contacts, it's healthcare workers, um, and it's certainly sexual contacts are, are at increased risk as well, but that's not the only route of transmission. So how do public health officials navigate that kind of messaging when there is a fine line between stigmatising a group and ensuring that they get the protection and the advice they need when there is an outbreak? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it can be quite challenging because obviously we would, we would have seen it historically in the 80s and 90s with, with something like HIV as well, you know. So I think what public health and, and all of us as, as medical professionals have to do is communicate as effectively as we can, is to educate the population at large, but also have our messages that are targeted at people where they're likely to receive them because we know that people, maybe younger people, for example, don't watch traditional news as much so they might get their information from podcasts or they might get their information from social media. So the likes of, say, the HSE and the Health Protection Surveillance Centre have done huge work in trying to get the message out across those platforms as well. But I think for public health and for public health messaging, I think we need to speak to the population as a whole but equally, if we, we have to be responsive to the data that we have. And I think if we explain to people where we're finding the cases and explain why we're, you know, why there may be some targeted messaging required. And, and again, if we look at the likes of COVID, obviously we had a significant issue in residential care facilities. So they might have had enhanced measures. So I think it's important that we don't get too caught up in, in the populations or the groups that are involved themselves. But if we explain why we're directing certain messaging at, at particular groups and provide the context, then I think most people would be happy to take that on board and, and wouldn't be, I suppose, unduly offended by it. But but it is a fine balance, as you say. 
Part of the stigma here is also undoubtedly connected to the name monkeypox. Could it and should it be changed? So I remember the the WHO was talking about this uh, a few weeks back, I think. And I think certainly, as as I think I mentioned earlier, monkeypox itself is is probably a misnomer. We don't actually know definitively what the the single natural reservoir for, for the virus is. So I certainly think it wouldn't be unreasonable to to change the name because if you look at that, that would happen quite regularly in virology. So, for example, if you look at, say, something like chickenpox or or varicella zoster virus, that's also called human herpes virus type 3. So we often try to move away from naming particular regions or particular animals uh, because it, it can cause confusion and it actually doesn't give you any information um, about the virus itself. So what's useful in the monkeypox name is actually the second part of it, the pox. So this is this virus is a, is a member of the orthopox family, along with smallpox, along with vaccinia, um, and along with other pox viruses. So that's kind of the relevant piece of information. So I think certainly renaming it wouldn't be a bad thing, but I, I do take your point that, that the, the connotations associated with monkeypox in and of itself may be considered offensive or maybe considered stigmatizing but i think the question is if we do change the name it's it's how best to to change that so that it makes sense scientifically and virologically and, and also that we don't um, lose the ability to communicate readily with the public so i want to talk to you about the vaccine in a moment but first are there treatments for people who are not vaccinated now and who end up sick with monkeypox and um, so the treatment for most people thankfully the west african um strain that's causing this current outbreak uh, causes a milder form of the illness than the the congregation uh, strain so treatment is primarily symptomatic and supportive for whatever the the, the symptoms that, that the patient may have whether it's uh, say uh, pain related to the lesions or whether it's related to the fever but for people who develop more severe disease and perhaps require hospitalization or for people who fall into a, a high-risk group there is an antiviral called uh, ticoviramat it's reasonably new in the context and that of us not having a huge amount of, of human data uh, about its effectiveness versus monkeypox but it is a it is a treatment or an antiviral agent for which we have evidence that it works against the whole family of, of orthopox viruses so that's available it's licensed in the european union it's it's available in ireland but as i said it's primarily reserved for those who either have very severe disease or who uh, fall into one of the high risk groups and are there any treatments that we don't have in ireland that are available elsewhere or do we have access to everything here um, at the moment we have we have access to, to everything that that is available and licensed there there, there isn't a huge um I suppose, armory of antiviral medications for, for monkeypox at this point. Um, there are some other antiviral agents that can be used there. So while they don't necessarily target monkeypox specifically, they would target DNA viruses um, across the board. So we also have some of those if, if we need them. But I think ticoviramat is the preferred agent at this point. Okay. So tell us about the vaccine now. How has it been developed and how effective is it expected to be now? So it's interesting, we don't have, and actually, and this comes back to, I suppose, our the earlier question about the ultimate origins of this outbreak. So we don't have a vaccine that is specific for monkeypox, but smallpox vaccination is effective against uh, monkeypox because obviously it's a related virus. 
So the smallpox vaccine contains a, a modified version of, of vaccinia virus that doesn't cause disease in humans as it can't replicate in human cells, but it provides very good protection against monkeypox infection. And we believe that the effectiveness is around about 85%. Um, now that's there from previous data from Africa. So I suppose one of the things we'll be doing during this outbreak is trying to learn more about, about how effective uh, the smallpox vaccine is, is in preventing um, monkeypox infection, I guess, in, in the Western world. But the reason I say that it comes back to an earlier question is because one of the theories, one of the general theories we have about the increasing number of cases of monkeypox in endemic regions is because of waning smallpox immunity. So as a lot of people will know, smallpox was eradicated in, in 1980 through a, an extensive global immunization campaign and the problem for us in that respect is that smallpox would have been one of monkeypox's natural competitors, if you like. So it would have been very difficult for monkeypox to establish a foothold in a smallpox world. And then, of course, we introduced vaccination to eradicate smallpox, which had the benefit of providing protection against monkeypox. But once um, smallpox was eradicated, appropriately, we stopped vaccinating against smallpox. So therefore, there's a whole population of people, of young people growing up in endemic regions in sub-Saharan Africa who don't have the immunity to monkeypox that their parents and grandparents and, and great-grandparents might have had. And that means that we're seeing an increasing number of cases in those endemic regions with a consequent increase in the risk of exported cases and then the risk of those cases getting into super spreading events in other parts of the world. So actually, while monkeypox, while this outbreak itself is, is unprecedented, in some respects, you could argue that it wasn't entirely unpredictable um, once we took out smallpox and then once we discontinued smallpox vaccination. And in what way can this vaccine be used? Could it be used post-exposure, for example, or do you need to get it well in advance? So, you know, you're right, it can be used actually in both settings. So it can be used post-exposure within, within the first four days, like it is uh, following um, exposure. But also it can be, ideally it would be used um, in a pre-exposure setting, so prophylactically. And I think the challenge we have at the moment, so it has obviously, we have a number of doses of, of vaccine available in Ireland. It has been recommended for use in, in the post-exposure setting for close contacts. It has been recommended for use in the pre-exposure setting um, for healthcare workers who would be at high risk of infection in the context of their work. And then the other group or the other guidance that we're currently working on from NIAC is the fact that it will be recommended for people who are at a high risk of infection. And typically in the context of, of the current outbreak, as we were talking, um, as we were speaking earlier, it, that would relate to uh, members of the GBMSM community. Now, the problem is given limited supply of vaccine, the HSE is, is working with stakeholders to, to, I suppose, determine how best to identify those most at risk and basically utilize the available vaccine supplies most effectively. So in an ideal world, yes, you'd give it to people before they're exposed. But as I said, we have limited supplies. And I think that's one of the key areas that we want to probably, as a global community, probably try and develop in, in the coming months to increase vaccine supplies. And, and then once that can be done, uh, then I think pre-exposure prophylaxis or pre-exposure vaccination would be the best way to go. And I mean, people will remember during the COVID pandemic, the early days of vaccines, we had supply issues as well. And that was because there was a huge demand. Everybody wanted it and there wasn't enough being produced. Is it basically the same situation here? 
I think I think there's an element of that, but I think to be fair, it's it was never intended, I guess, for use in a, in a monkeypox outbreak of this nature. It was a smallpox vaccine that was being, in some respects, it was being held in, in a very prudent fashion because obviously, as as we said earlier, smallpox has been eradicated um, from the natural world. Now there are obviously some concerns that it may be retained in in some laboratories uh, somewhere in, in nefarious countries, but that's. Uh, there's a, we don't have evidence for that. There's obviously a, a concern that people might decide to get involved in, in bioterrorism and try and revive smallpox somehow. So the stocks of smallpox vaccine that we have were, were retained for very good reasons, but obviously weren't necessarily intended for, for a, a global immunization campaign. And obviously then it comes we come along to this um, monkeypox outbreak and we realize that we need an awful lot more vaccine available. So I think the, the declaration of the, the public health emergency of international concern um, by the WHO uh, will hopefully release funding and support for for the upscaling of, I suppose, of vaccine production. But I think it would be, so yes, it's not inaccurate to say that we were we were found wanting a little bit, but I, I don't, I think it's probably a little bit harsh in the context of, of why we were keeping that stock of vaccine in the first place. It probably, we didn't envisage something like this uh, requiring it. What are we expecting the vaccination programme in Ireland to look like? It won't be a rollout to the entire population, right? Um, no, I, I, I wouldn't think so. So as, as you said earlier, I think like our case numbers at the moment are, are in around 100. So while we're seeing, I suppose, a steady number of cases each week um it's not exploding thankfully which is which is good news so i think what a program here and, and obviously will depend on i suppose on international guidelines as well because while our numbers here are still fairly small we're seeing globally that the number of cases is is continuing to increase so i think it's fair to say that we don't yet have this outbreak under control and i think that's obviously a concern so i think from a vaccination perspective if we had a a healthy supply of vaccine we'd absolutely be starting with those individuals who are who are at the highest risk of infection and then i suppose monitoring the impact of that and, and perhaps rolling out the vaccine thereafter uh, depending on, on the need because i think one of the concerns that we have from a, a virological perspective at this stage with lots of transmission of monkeypox in in the western world is that the virus may ident may find a a natural host reservoir, a host animal reservoir uh, in the wild up here that it didn't have before. So the concern for us then is that if monkeypox became established in the wild here, then there'd be an ongoing risk of spillover events back into the human population. So I think we want to try and control this as, as quickly as we can, because even though it's a mild disease at the moment, there's no reason to suggest that it would always remain mild. So I don't think we want to get to a stage where monkeypox becomes endemic in, you know, in, in Ireland or in, in other European countries or in other parts of the world. In, in real terms, we should be trying to control it at source um, in Central Africa and Western Africa and uh, prevent it becoming a, a problem there, whether that's through vaccination campaigns or, or other attempts. It's always going to be difficult to eradicate because there are obviously natural reservoirs in the wild. So the contrast with smallpox in that respect is that smallpox didn't have a natural reservoir in the wild. So therefore it was it was amenable to um, eradication through immunization. But monkeypox is going to be more challenging than that because, because it does have a, a natural reservoir. And obviously people in Ireland will be focused on the plans here, the number of cases here, which as you've said is relatively low. 
but this is a global issue. Are there particular countries of concern at the moment? I think while there aren't necessarily particular countries of concern, I, I guess what's probably of more concern is just how widespread this, um, well, this, it ultimately is a, it's a pandemic in, in all but name at this stage. So I think that's probably the greater concern is how, is how a virus like this managed to get seeded in, in so many regions over such a, a short space of time um, and lead to so many outbreaks. So if we look globally, the US has reported most cases globally, just it's coming up on around 10,000 now at the moment. And if, well, in Europe, Spain has reported the most cases at, at just around 5,000. But I think within Europe, if we look at France, Germany uh, and the UK as well, they've all got over 2,000 or between two and 3,000 cases. So there are no, I suppose, bad countries, if you like, because obviously people are working to, to try and test as much as possible and find as many cases as possible to, to try and control this. But I think, yeah, the, the greater cause for concern is just how, how widespread it has become over, over a short few months. So what are the potential next steps now in the global public health response? Uh, it's a really good question. And I think you, you probably identified it your, yourself earlier in the context of the vaccination question. If we were discussing this as a, as a hypothetical a couple of years back, we would, or even say six months ago, we would have said that monkeypox wouldn't be your ideal candidate for a, a public health emergency of international concern because, as I said, traditionally, it wouldn't have been considered to be a very transmissible, a very in- infectious virus. It just, again, by way of comparison with, with COVID, in many outbreaks, the, the reproductive number or the effective reproductive number for monkeypox was less than one. So that meant that on average, each infected individual infected less than one other person and when that happens typically an outbreak just withers away and ceases you know just uh, declines and and fades away itself without intervention necessarily so we find ourselves in a very different position to that obviously monkeypox has obviously shown itself to be very capable of causing large-scale outbreaks and, and and crossing the world so i think education and information is going to be a key part of this i think we need to try and identify those cases that as many cases as we can so through active case finding um in both the population at large and, and also in those communities that are are more predominantly affected once we find cases then it becomes about case control and preventing onward transmission and breaking those trains of tra- chains of transmission and the easiest way of that in, in many respects obviously is if we did have access to a larger number of, of vaccination doses that we could roll that out fairly quickly. Treatment is, is very much after the fact. And, and as I said, thankfully, most infections are, are quite mild. But I, th- I think we really want to try and, and prevent this becoming endemic if we can. As I said, I think the, the declaration of, of the Public Health Emergency of International Concern, I suppose, will will focus minds to, to a certain degree and, and hopefully bring a bit more political will globally to realizing that this is something that that should be controllable because i think you you know people will look back over the last couple of years of the pandemic and say that with covid we might have done better or we you know we could have done more and all the rest of it but i think covid became very was a very challenging pathogen and a very difficult adversary in many respects in the context of a, of a global community and a global society monkeypox is certainly providing some surprises based on what we would have traditionally seen in in sub-Saharan Africa. But I do think that we should work on the basis that, that this can be controlled based on what we know of the virus, given its characteristics, 
Um, and I think that with a, a little bit more political will and, as I said, uh, increased production of, of vaccines uh, and, and a, a broader approach to, to more active case finding as we would have done in, in the past, I think is probably something that we may be looking at or, or considering as a, as a global community in, in the coming weeks and months to try and sort of knock this on the head. Well, we'll certainly be watching the developments with this very closely. Killian, thanks for coming on to talk us through it all. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer. And thanks again to Killian for joining me. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber, or you can leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.